This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. A recent study published in the journal Pediatrics suggests that more teenage girls in the U.S. may be experiencing major depressive episodes in their teen years than boys do. And the troubling numbers took a leap after 2011, which some scientists suggest may have something to do with teens' reliance on social media. Today we're presenting an episode called Raising Girls Part 2 with some more of the special challenges navigating through the conflicts that arise around raising girls. We did a two-parter on raising boys earlier in the series, and last time on Raising Girls Part 1, we began the discussion and introduced you to our panel. It featured three women, scholars, writers, practitioners, and parents all, Lisa Damore, Michelle Coleman, and Lara Dotson-Renta. We'll hear more from all three of them on our panel again today. Plus, we'll hear from two teen girls from an Albuquerque high school whom our research assistant Joshua Dofford Johnson interviewed for today's program, too. Joshua zeroed in on probably the key issue for girls, the barrage of messaging from everywhere, overemphasizing body image and appearance and romantic pursuits. Like when I was little, I wore soccer jerseys and cargo shorts every day of elementary school because that's what I was comfortable in. And then going into middle school, people always tell you like, oh, like wear a dress and look really pretty in middle school because the boys won't like you if you do that. And I'm like, oh, so then it started from a young age. Your image is supposed to look a certain way. I struggle with my personal appearance solely because I've grown up with people telling me that I'm not good enough or that I don't fit the ideal of what a beautiful woman is and things like that. And so I struggle with that self-confidence aspect of my life. I think America for such a long time now, we've become very dependent on this very superficial ideal of a woman and a man, like for both. And the whole, like throughout the world, there's many different ideals of what the perfect man, what the perfect woman is. And I think for America, We've created such unrealistic standards that the normal person is never going to look like that. The model in the magazine doesn't look like that. They edit her so much. They edit him so much. And so I think it's just kind of, it's people being able to under, just to accept that this is what I look like and that's what I should be happy with. You can, you're free to change who you are as well though. If you, maybe you aren't happy with your image, you can totally change it. That's like, it's your body, you do what you want. We need to constantly be helping girls reflect on how crafted the images they see really are. This is Dr. Lisa Damore, Ph.D., a psychologist and author of the book Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. Everything that is published has been modified to be made to look more perfect. And even the images that girls put up of themselves these days, you know, the the selfies online, those are often very carefully curated and selected images. You know, they may look like spontaneous snaps, but they're often not. And so I think one check we can have against this, and um, there's some very lovely work by a psychologist named Jill Walsh who talks about this, you know, is that we need to say to teenagers, you know, you know how that magazine image has been crafted? You know your friend took 50 pictures before she she posted that one. Right. Delete, 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 yeah. Exactly, because that helps put some distance between them and the image. Um, I think the other thing I tell this story in my book, you know, one time when I was a teenager, I was looking at a magazine, and a family friend pointed at a model and said, you know, that's her job. And, and that was a really helpful moment for me that's obviously stayed with me 
you know, for 30 years, which is, you know, in the image, she's doing some other job or she's, you know, feeding children and walking a dog. But in real life, to look the way she looks is a full-time professional effort. Let me interrupt for a minute. It's a job for her to create a fantasy that the rest of us can dive into one way or another. Exactly. Would you put it that bluntly to a 13-year-old? Yeah, I would. I would. And and I think um, the other thing I'm thinking about more and more is, you know, I think when you're saying, look, I think you're beautiful, all sorts of bodies are perfect, everybody's wonderful. I mean, those things are all true, but we're still talking about appearance. You know, and so I think sometimes the way you get a break from the whole appearance pressure for girls is you talk about all of the other thing girls are. They are smart. They are funny. They are interesting. They're inventive. They've got a lot of really cool stuff going on. So sometimes I think you change the conversation by actually just changing the conversation. I mean, it just strikes me it's how you are. It's not how you look. Yeah. Two different things. Well, it seems like it's important to spend a little time on this, um, and maybe we can seg into it. You say that it is important for parents to wade into commenting on sexualized media. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Because obviously that's a, a big distraction and a curiosity at that age. Yeah, so the media is highly sexualized, and the landscape of what kids can access is really different than it has ever been. And this is a conversation I think no adults want to have, and yet it's a critical conversation, which is that um, a lot of how teenagers are coming to understand what adult sexuality is, is shaped by pornography, because they have absolutely massive access to it. And um, I think, you know, one of the things that I do recommend in my book, which is a very weird recommendation for me to get to, is that parents should, if they can, familiarize themselves a little bit with what teenagers are looking at. And I tell a story of um, a parent doing this for me. I was getting ready to give a talk at a boys' school in my community, and she said, you know, I think you should take a look at what the ninth grade boys are looking at. And she, this was a, a lovely mother in our community who's a very um, upright and lovely human being. And she sent me to a pornography website. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm a grown up. I can take a look at this. And I was really blown away by what was there. And it really has shifted how I talk with teenagers about adult sexuality and the representation of sexuality. Because what they're seeing goes far, far beyond, I think, what we imagine they're seeing. And I think it's not working for us to be having one conversation where we're saying, now, don't forget, you know, to ask somebody for consent. And, you know, I think those are important conversations, but I think we're often having them with the assumption that we're working with relatively blank slates, um, where we're talking to teenagers who are carrying around um, a sexual knowledge that is really, really warped um, by what they're seeing, and they don't know that it's warped. They don't have access to a wider range of what adult sexuality can be or might be. I'm, I'm accepting that it would be awkward and uncomfortable, but if you you're caught your daughter looking at that, and this could go for boys as well too, mm-hmm. or they were you know, uh, somehow uh, allowing you to know that you just sort of take a path of dumping, jumping in and saying, all right, let's look at this together and really deconstruct it. Um, I think that's right. I haven't had that experience myself, but I, as awkward as that seems, it just seems like it would maybe open up so much possibilities to do more good than, than skirting around it or being nervous about it. What do you think? 
I think those are hugely important conversations. Um, I wrote a column for the New York Times a while back called How to Talk with Teenagers About Pornography, and it's available online. And, and what I say, you know, I say maybe have this conversation in the car when nobody has to look at anybody and, you know, it's going to be a time-limited conversation. But I do encourage parents to say, look, I don't know if you're looking at what's out there, but I want to weigh in about it, you know, and that. And, and, I, and I sort of walk through the points of what we might say. And the kinds of things we might say is, you know, that is one corner of adult sexuality and it's not the corner that we feel good about. And, you know, you know, there's various things that we can say. But I will take any opportunity when I'm with teenagers and I have the kind of time, and often I'm meeting with teenagers in groups, to weigh in as a grown-up and say, look, you know, I don't know if you guys have seen this or if the people you're dating have seen this, but I just want you to know, you know, people who are agreeing to have sex on camera, you know, that's, you're already looking at a subset there, and you need to keep that in mind. You know, and I say more than that, but I think it's, it's a conversation we need to have with teenagers. Let me ask then about the conversation. What is the best way for parents to have and keep having the sex education talk with daughters nowadays? It, it pretty much has to start preteen anymore, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it does, but I think it can start really small. And what I recommend in my book and what we, when we look at the data about what's effective is that the girls with the best adolescent sexual health are ones who feel that they can advocate for themselves. So... The way we start young is when we're, you know, watching some goofy, you know, maybe high school musical movie and, you know, the boy is being really clear about his wishes for some, you know, goofy crush. I think that we should say to our daughters, though they will roll their eyes, we should say, oh, but what does she want? What does she want to have happen here? Um, And to take that message of, you know, what anyone in a sexual interaction deserves is to first think, what do I want? Um, And then, you know, the next question is, what does my partner want? And what do we both want? And what are the risks involved? And what do we need to do to manage that? Um, But I think what we know is that when we talk with girls about sex, we tend to talk about risk. And we do need to get to that conversation, but it turns out the risks go down if we start the conversation about talking about what girls want and what they have a right to advocate for and how they articulate what they don't want. Um, But when we talk about girls being on defense all the time and we frame female sexuality in those terms, we actually see that girls don't take such good care of themselves after all. Well, it certainly has to be more than one talk, which is sort of the way classically it's been portrayed you know you have the birds and the bees talk and then you're done that's how it was for my parents that didn't suit me very well but so let's let's agree that it should be an ongoing dialogue and I'm curious about it being a mother and father conversation with a daughter what are the pros and cons to that I think everybody should weigh in in their own time Um, it's very hard for me to picture any teenager who would be really really excited to sit down with both her mom and dad and have a long sex talk you know I think um, I do think like you say these are ongoing conversations they come up in context often the context in which they come up is that the teenager says oh my gosh did you hear so-and-so she did this you know and and parents can take those moments to say okay well what do you think about that and is she keeping herself safe and is that what she wanted you know so I think Whoever happens to be standing there in the moment when the topic comes up, you know, if they can take a deep breath and think, okay, let's first talk about what girls want and then let's talk about risk and let's take this conversation as another opportunity to talk about my daughter's right to put her wishes at the center of her sexual life and do things that she would enjoy while also making sure that she's taking good care of herself.
let's talk about social media. You write, I'm blown away by the power of technology to stunt girls' ability to recognize and manage their own feelings. How does it do that? The way we should think about social media is that it gives teenagers and it gives adults, right, constant access to one another. And it's a fabulous distraction. So I can say from my own life that when I'm sitting on my computer and I'm working on a writing project and I get bored, it's so easy just to click over to another tab and see what's happening on Twitter or Facebook just because I don't want to deal with my boredom or I don't want to deal with where I got stuck in my writing. So this is a very human impulse that I think most adults can connect with. The teenage version of it is, I've had a fight with my friend, rather than sitting alone at my home reflecting on the fight with my friend, I'm gonna hop online and see what else is going on, right? So if I think about that, I don't have to think about this, right? That's, that's sort of how it operates. And what we had the benefit of as adolescents was that if something went wrong, eventually we went home and we just had to let things drop or we just had to sit with the discomfort and eat dinner with our family and find a way to feel better and then you know try to get a decent night's sleep and go back in the next day and see if we could figure out where things stood or things had sort of quieted down overnight and let them and gone away now we've created a condition where teenagers don't have to sit alone with anything and who wants to sit alone with an uncomfortable feeling so what I worry about when I think about how technology is shaping, you know, how, how humans deal with feelings is that it makes it all too easy to reach out when sometimes we want to be looking in. So, again, in terms of practical uh, uh, responses for parents, first of all, you say in your book that as soon as a parent gives their daughter access to a phone to start on the strict side of usage rules, particularly at first, and then maybe ease up a little bit more about that as a practical suggestion. Well, so what we want is for teenagers to develop the capacity to manage discomfort. And, you know, that's a capacity that's growing all the time. And so um, the longer they go without access to a phone, which is just nothing but a fabulous distraction, um, well, it's a lot of other things, but it also happens to be a fabulous distraction, uh, the more skills they'll develop for regulating hard feelings or managing hard feelings. And then when they do get access to technology, um, making sure there's lots of times when they don't have access to technology, uh, whether that be you know overnight and dinner and while they're at school or while they're at practice or any vi variety of things. We want them in the real world managing real difficulties using the resources that do not involve electricity. Um, that That's a, an important part of development. Um, but then in terms of broader ways of thinking about social media, the place I am getting to increasingly is that a lot of what we don't like about how teenagers use social media is them doing exactly what we did without social media. So teenagers spend a lot of time posting photos and looking at photos and commenting on photos and crafting photos. They're really obsessed with how things look and presenting themselves in ways that they feel good about. I can speak for myself as a teenager. I was also obsessed with how I looked and how I presented myself and comparing myself to others and all of those things. So this is not a new adolescent behavior. It is just on steroids because they have constant access to one another and a visual medium to share. Lisa Damore, I am 
very grateful for your time today. I do want to ask you, though, since our program is really about trying to help parents and help them deal with conflict, in this particular case with raising daughters, uh, there's plenty we didn't talk about, obviously, but would you uh, f- close by picking one uh, conflict scenario in your book that we didn't talk about that, you know, before time runs out here that you'd want to say a little bit more about that you think is really important um, or at the core possibly of raising a healthy daughter and tell us a little bit about that and then what you have to say about it. Sure. Well, I'm going to pick something that seems small, but I actually think is big, which is eye rolling. Um, You know, teenage girls and teenage boys um, are prone to rolling their eyes. And in my experience, adults almost always take offense to it and, and it really bothers them. And one of the things that I like to talk and think and write about is that eye rolling serves many, many purposes for teenagers. Um, Sometimes eye rolling is a way that they express disagreement while doing what was asked of them. You know, so if you say you need to unload the dishwasher before you're headed out, a teenager may roll their eyes and turn around and unload that dishwasher. So they're not, you know, defying the adult, but they are sort of making it clear they're not really in the mood either. Um, Sometimes teenagers roll their eyes because they don't want to have the conversation the parent wants to have, and they're trying to deflect it. Um, So in some of my writing, I've talked about, you know, maybe a girl's very, very upset about a a loss of a friendship, and then her parents say, hey, how come Jenny hasn't been around lately? And she rolls her eyes because she doesn't want to burst into tears, and she just wants the conversation to end. Um, There's a lot of reasons for eye rolling. And so thinking about conflict with teenagers, and with teenage girls in particular, What I hope adults can take away from my work is that things are much less personal than they may look on the surface. You know, an eye-rolling teenage girl may not be trying to, you know, be disrespectful. She may be eye-rolling for any variety of other reasons. But also, I feel like, especially when it comes to conflict with girls, adults don't like it. Adults really like how compliant girls can be, how much they happily go along with what we ask. And, and part of what I feel like I'm advocating for is, if a girl is going along with what we ask, I don't think she actually has to do it happily. And in fact, when girls are doing it happily, I think they're often sacrificing something in themselves. So I'd like to create a little more room in our culture for girls to bristle and comply, or bristle and straight up disagree, and have adults find ways to be okay with that and have meaningful conversations with their daughters. Would you allow me one last question? And it is complex, but I do want, I've highlighted this that I wanted to ask you about. What is a helpful path to take if you, as a parent, see your daughter as an anxious girl? I mean, you write about bipolar disorders and excessive anxiety, and I just would like to get a little bit of a word about how you define those um, areas in terms of where the concern should be and what might be a good way to go about it. That is a complex one, and probably uh, may, I may be more than I can chew uh, in the time that we have available. But I think, you know, the ways that we can think about it are, you know, anxiety comes from a wide variety of sources. Um, anxiety is often a signal that something else is amiss. You know, we get anxious when we're in a scary situation, or we get anxious when we're worried we're going to do something we shouldn't do. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of unpacking um, that can come with trying to make sense of what anxiety's from. And I think we also need to remember anxiety is a healthy and normal function for a lot of us. You know, that if you are 
um, driving too fast on the highway and you feel anxious, that's anxiety doing its job. Um, so anxiety becomes a very big bucket into which many, many different things fall. And so I would say my universal recommendation on anxiety is to first stop and say, okay, is this healthy anxiety or unhealthy anxiety? Is this anxiety that's actually helping keep somebody, you know, making the right choices and keeping themselves safe? Or is this anxiety that for some reason has gotten out of control and is way out of proportion to the events that seem to be triggering it? That's the first question I would ask. I, but I wouldn't assume that all anxiety is a bad thing. Right. And then maybe some therapeutic intervention, if it seems, on the far end of the uh, continuum. Yeah. If it's unhealthy, then we want to step in and try to help. To hear more from Dr. Lisa Damore, author of the book Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com. Next up, Dr. Michelle Coleman, Ph.D. and founder of the Attachment Healing Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And later in the program, writer and scholar Laura Dotson-Renta. When our program Raising Girls Part 2 continues on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. We're online at peacetalksradio.com, and that's where you can hear part one of our two-part program called Raising Girls from our 2017 season. Today it's part two, also there on the 2017 page on our website. It's also where you can hear our two-part program called Raising Boys as well from our 2014 season. Our next guest today is Dr. Michelle Coleman. As we heard in our part one with Dr. Coleman, she has worked in the field of foster care and adoption all of her life. She adopted two sisters with emotional needs from the foster care system while living in Virginia, and then 14 years later, she and her partner adopted a son with emotional needs from New Mexico. Dr. Coleman's developed a model for treatment of youngsters with attachment issues that she and her staff employ at the Attachment Healing Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico which she founded and operates to help families with children who have had attachment issues through any manner of circumstances, orphaned, removed from parents by the state, youngsters put up for adoption, or sometimes just trying to manage a fractured family. So we have Dr. Coleman in a moment, but first our research assistant Joshua Doffer-Johnson has an excerpt from one of his interviews with a couple of Albuquerque high schoolers. We hear that fractured families are certainly not uncommon. Most divorces don't end well, and it's usually the child that gets hurt the most. Would you agree with that statement? I guess in a way. I was really young when my parents got divorced, like too young to remember them actually being divorced. Um, 
so I can't tell from the experience of immediate effects, but um, it's a hard experience, but I think it's one that helps strengthen you. I mean, um, I have trust issues with people because I've made connections with people and then because of my family, they're no longer in my life. And so the hardest part is coming to terms with that. But then I realize even if someone comes into your life and you make a connection with them and they're really important to you, sometimes things just don't work out. And I take comfort in the fact that I would rather meet someone and know someone and learn from them than to have not met them at all. And so I may not be able to give an accurate experience of knowing my own parents' divorce, but I can see the same interactions between um, the subsequent relationships my parents have had since then. And I feel like the it's a similar situation and most of the time I just talk it out with people I care about and um, come to terms with it. Don't don't hide it away. Don't try and ignore it because then it just festers. You got to take it head on and, and learn from the experience so that you can grow as a person. And I don't blame either of my parents for the divorce because if you don't love someone, you don't love them. It doesn't mean they should have to stay together and not love each other just because they had a child. They're very cordial with each other and spend a lot of their time making compromises for my sake. Welcome, Michelle Coleman. Thank you. You have on your website a list of what doesn't work. So what doesn't work in steering youngsters <laughs> through challenging conditions that might actually seem intuitively like good approaches? So we once had a, a teenager in Santa Fe. And so there are some conditions for change. So let me just say those conditions first. So um, in about the 1970s, we discovered that the brain has what's called neuroplasticity. It can change, but there are some conditions for neuroplasticity. A, you have to be in a relationship with a positive, caring other. That's two things, be in a relationship with a positive, caring other. And both sides have to be motivated to change. In relationship with a positive, caring other, where both sides are motivated to change, then in naturally occurring situations, we need to have a corrective experience. Okay, so that those are the conditions that need to be present to change the brain. Change the brain, the behavior naturally would change. So I'm in Santa Fe with this teenager. And I ask her, I say, um, what is it uh, you need? Are you willing to work with us to figure out you know, what's going on? And she looks at me and says, well, first of all, I'm going to be willing to work with you all if you're not going to do what the other therapists have done. And I was like, uh, what did they do? Well, every week they come in and they ask me about all the things I did wrong. And then when they leave, I feel so bad about all the things I did wrong, I have to go and do some more wrong things just to feel better. Okay, no, we won't be doing that. So we don't focus on the behavior. 
right? We work really hard to figure out if you're lying, if you're stealing, if you're smoking, if you're drinking, if you're having sex, if you what is the underlying need? What is it you need? Let us work on meeting that need. Can you ask your parents for what you need and want? Can you allow them to serve you? Can you trust that they're not going to hurt you? Can you let them in? That particular child had had 25 placements in the first two years of their life. To trust an adult was the scariest thing in the world for them to do. They'd already done that and they'd been hurt. So that's a big deal. And I realize and my clinicians realize what we're asking a child to do when we ask them to work with us to trust that an adult can meet their needs. Mm -hmm. But that begs the question then, you really have to have adults involved that are ready to step up and play that role. So you're working with family units in almost every case so that everybody is on the same page. That's exactly right. Right. But it seems like it would be personal observation now for me, 60 years of life, to watch friends and family. I never had children. I've helped mentor kids, and I've co-parented, you know, in certain situations. Nice. But um, I got to say, most parents just don't know what they're in for and don't think about it too much, you know, when they start having kids. That's very true. Right. So you could take on a case, obviously, with some uh, parents, either biological or caregivers, who need as much or more work than Mm. the youngsters do, right? Oh, absolutely. And we give them the service that they need as well. So our informed consent first paragraph says that the parent is going to be willing to be the agent of change. We're not the agent of change. It's the parent who has to do their personal work because they're with it day in, day out. They're there in the middle of the crisis. They're there in the morning. They're there at night. They are the ones who have to provide the corrective experience. But our wounding is going to get triggered. And so they have to be able to put their wounding aside, attend to the child, and then the parent comes back to pick up their wounding and get healing. So we provide individual counseling to them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming through my research, the, the biggest thing that happened in the focus group after we had um, gathered data on individual families and um, parents and children, in the focus group where they all came together to review the information, the biggest thing that came out is one of the parents looked at another and said, If you are focusing on the child's behavior, you will stay stuck. You must take the focus off the child and put it on yourself. No matter how your child shows up, you must meet them with love. And I'm guessing, though, too, that if you're working with parents in their 30s, their brains are harder to correct. I mean, if they haven't had a story of therapy or someone challenging them to look at their own needs and where their own behaviors come from, their own issues that obviously insert themselves into the raising of a child, that's a super big challenge. Uh, It it can be. It depends on how motivated the parent is. Um, In that situation, that was the mom of a teenager, 16-year-old girl, And this was her second marriage. Mm -hmm. And she took a look at all the things she had done wrong Mm -hmm. in the first marriage and how she was not showing up for her daughter now. And she was recreating Mm -hmm. how she grew up. So she was motivated. She was a customer. Um, 
right now, Paul, we're only working with customers. So I'm not sure I understand what you mean when you say we're only working with customers. Those who are willing, parents who are willing to look at their issues. Okay. If you want us to totally focus on the kid or you say the kid's bad, fix the kid, we're not the agency for you because that doesn't change their brain. We need the parent to be able to not get triggered when that kid curses them out, not throw a fit and punish the child when they come in and see feces smeared all over the wall, Um, when the kid has lied to them, when they've stolen from the teacher and they've gotten a call from school. We need the parent who's going to be willing to say, okay, this is hard for me. This is so hard. you got to help me get grounded. And we listen to them. We let them blah, get it all out. And then, okay, now, how are you going to show it with your kid? How are you going to handle this? Right. And so what are some ideas that you are passing along to the parents? I mean, just practical tools. Is it the count to ten or, you know? <laughs> um, so what I told a, a parent just last week, is the way, and it was my insight, actually, Paul, around my son, um, who grew up in his birth home, no focus on schooling. So when we met him at 11, he couldn't read. It was in the fifth grade, and he couldn't read. And so he tells himself he's stupid and, and he can't read. And so I had a personal experience where I realized that sometimes when I'm asking him to sit down and do his schoolwork, he can read now, like after six months he learned to read with us. And so when I sit down to challenge him on his schoolwork, okay, let's do it now, he would get aggressive with me. I used to think that was about me, but it wasn't. And so just last week I told a, a parent, I said, when you're redirecting your child and he attacks either verbally or physically, he attacks, dodge it. Like, that's not about you. He's going to a shameful place in himself, okay? Get curious about what are you telling yourself now? Is that the truth of you? I see who you are. You're really good. You make good choices. You're helpful. You help me with the younger kids. Is this really how you want to show up? Okay, so that's one thing Mm -hmm. that we do. That's what I do with my kid. And it shifts him in the moment. He used to have a meltdown, throw a temper tantrum, throw things, curse us out, storm out of the room, right? And that would last for hours. Now, like in the moment, he's like, yeah, I was telling myself I'm stupid. I can't. And mm-hmm. That's huge because what happens is he sees that I see him. Right. This sounds like radical empathy and curiosity. Nice. I like it. I'd yeah. go with that. Can I add one of the things, yeah. another tool that helps with that is the parent has to not be reactive. They have to be emotionally regulated. The parent has to stay calm, no matter the situation. Now, you can get triggered. You can feel stuff coming up. Put that aside. In that moment with your child, just like you say, help me understand what's going on. Is that really how you want to show up? You respond, not react. Go all the way back to the beginning when I said when that baby cries, the very first thing we do is respond to that baby's emotional distress. Mm-hmm. I don't care if that baby's 17, <clears throat> 7, or 3. It's the same. We've studied nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg's work, and that sort of thing here, oh, too. Okay. So uh, he would say that there is a step, particularly, I guess, if you're dealing with older children, where you would identify the feel, your own feeling that's coming up. You know, when I see this, I feel this, and then you kind of turn into the empathetic step mm-hmm. and, and make a request mm-hmm. right so those are his, those are those his, those, steps. his steps yeah so are you saying to skip the step that uh, 
uh, where a parent would acknowledge their try to put words on their feeling. Right. No, we don't. We don't have the parent stop and, and attend to themselves in that moment when the child is distressed. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first thing we have. Well, you notice it, but you put it aside and you get to the kid and you just reflect back the emotion that you see coming. Wow, you're really angry. Something's coming up for you. I can't really tell what it is. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm here. Totally um, empathetic, as you would say. Totally what we call co-regulation. Totally staying calm and being that calming force. Answering the baby's cry. Baby in the crib crying. What are you going to do? You're going to move in. Mommy's here. Daddy's here. Auntie's mm-hmm. here. Shh, it's okay. I got you. That's what we do, even for a teenager. It just sounds differently than it does when they're a baby, but it's the very same, and the brain feels it the same. For me, I have to use humor when I get triggered, when I go to my survival place. Mm -hmm. You can't talk to me like that, like that's how I was raised. Um, I'll use humor. Oh, really? (laughs) Is that how you're going to come at me now? And that helps me shift back to my heart Mm -hmm. or to that place where I can then be um, empathic or empathetic with my kid. Okay. That's interesting. Say more about the themes that come up more often in session work with parents and for the sake of our program today, daughters that strain the relationship and undermine trust and and lead to detachment? So as some of the teen issues are um, not doing the schoolwork, ditching, right. hanging out with their peers, their friends, partying, that's more important. Um, as some of the teen issues from girls I hear uh, being sexually active um, when the parents that might not agree with the parents' values, um, the teenagers not taking precautions to keep themselves safe from sexually transmitted infections or becoming pregnant or like so it's against the culture. Plus, there's also a health risk. Um, All right, let's let's slow these down because th- these are ones I sort of anticipated. So let's talk about the relationship with learning and school and the social environment of school. Uh, what are some things that you would counsel both the youngsters and the parents around this conversation? So when you have um, a teenager, it's developmentally appropriate to care about your peer group. Now, here's the problem. The peer group of a child that doesn't trust adults is going to be the other teens that aren't trusting adults, so they're off on their own. So what we have to do is to be able to help that teenager shift so she can find other teens in her age group who are making good, healthy choices. She has to want to be like them and know that she'll be accepted by them and know that they'll still have fun, mm. even though they're not taking, um, taking risk. Now, that's, that's very interesting to me because, you know, we talked about, I mean, even you were talking about, uh, being interested in like-minded people who <laughs> share your enthusiasm right. so that if you are predisposed because of your upbringing toward not trusting yes. adults and parents, then just naturally you're going to move toward people. So it must be very hard. So th- so now we're talking about helping them have sort of an advanced association of understanding this is why I'm attracted to them. There's a reason for it. There's all this awareness that you have to promote and have them do something that moves them toward a group that doesn't feel like them. So you have to remember motivation is one of the conditions for neuroplasticity. And so 
the one place that we're able to get in, especially for the teens, which is why it's really nice because you have multiple places to get in before they're teenagers, is that intimate relationships. So how are your intimate relationships showing up? Um, do you have friends that stay? Are you all mean to each other? Do they leave you? Do they, and it's awful. right? They treat one another awfully. right? So is that the kind of relationship you want to be in? Either, you know, same sex, different sex, doesn't matter, just can be friends. Is this how you want to be treated? No, I hate it. Right? So if you want that different, then you have to change. And usually that's enough motivation for my teens to be able to say, okay, I'm willing to do it. I don't like how, you know, my girlfriend, you know, puts me down. She talks about me. She embarrasses me in front of everyone. I share my feelings with her. I tell her what's going on. Okay, so then maybe you're talking about having different friends. And because that's their number one motivator is their peers and being accepted, Hmm. that usually is enough for them to be able to learn to do it differently. Now, the way they learn to do it differently isn't outside. It's at home. It's with the parents. And that's what I tell them then we're going to work on changing your brain in relationship with your parents. How you show up to them, whether or not you're making the relationship the most important thing. Are you lying? Are you listening? Are you letting them be in charge? Mm -hmm. And then once your brain changes, that's going to show up differently in the friends you're going to attract. It strikes me that you're describing the first step is to create a... um supportive group at home that you want to belong to, not yes. necessarily because because I'm thinking the counterpoint is, is that it's not just about pleasing your parents, but it's about being on the same page for a healthy behavior that you want for yourself as the child, that they want for you because yes. they love you. Right. And then that's the start of the new group yes. in a way. Yes, I like that. I like that reframe. Absolutely. Because now you're learning how to be vulnerable, how to be open, be authentic about how you feel and what you want. Even though there might be some disappointment that comes in that, you're learning that that's okay. Mm -hmm. They're not going to hurt me. We have to help that brain see that this is a different situation. This is a different relationship. And I am safe here. It is okay to be me. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to let another in to see who I really am. I'm not going to be hurt. To hear more from Dr. Michelle Coleman, founder and CEO of New Mexico's Attachment Healing Center, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com. Listen to the entire interview with her that includes our part one conversation and bonus commentary. That's at peacetalksradio.com. Next up, Laura Dotson-Renta, writer and scholar and mom to two young girls. Raising girls is our topic today on Peace Talks Radio. We'll have more after this break.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening. Today it's Raising Girls Part 2. Just some ideas from our panel on ways to handle just some of the conflicts that come up when raising girls into adulthood. Dr. Lara Dotson-Renta, Ph.D., is our next guest. She's a writer and scholar affiliated with Brown University in Rhode Island. Lara lives in Connecticut with her husband and their two girls. Her areas of study include Latin studies, French studies, African studies. She was born in Puerto Rico. She writes for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, and other publications. And her girls are four years old and seven years old. She's interested in how issues of race and gender intersect with parenting. It is distinctive, raising girls. There's, there's a lot of conflicting messages that they get and a lot of complexity that goes into really trying to understand the emotional life of a girl. But what I've, uh, I've noticed in this process as well is that um, we're not doing that well by boys either. You know, and, and they're very limited in how they're able to imagine themselves um, emotionally, especially, and that I think progress will come when we're able to give children, you know, boys and girls, the space and latitude necessary to imagine themselves. Um, I think differently than we're doing right now. I think uh, things will become better for girls um, once they're also better emotionally for boys. You know, one will build on the other. And I, I hope that, you know, we can all be more cognizant of the, the vast emotional lives of our children and how we can best support them. How are you handling the exposure to the mediated world with your youngsters? Well, I think that it's, it's pretty difficult to keep kids away from all forms of media. And so far we have been pretty... I think fortunate and, and cautious in having the kids have access mostly to things that are oriented at younger children and that you know will, will have some kind of a, of a buffer. But as you start to delve into media access from peers or friends or movies, you know, I'm, I'm not getting by anymore on the movies aimed at preschoolers and kindergartners. As my daughter gets older, she's no longer interested. So when she wants to see new things, that brings up entirely different conversations that you're then, okay, well, this is an opportunity. Even if this is not something I'm very excited to talk about right now, it's an opening. And one of the things that I've begun to notice in the age of media and social media and just communication and all of these different virtual ways that are constant is that my eldest in particular is looking at representation in a way that's pretty intuitive and in a way that it's it's just more obvious that she's noticing so she'll ask questions like oh why isn't there a girl there or what's the girl's job in this movie or oh I really want the girl to win and she's seeking out um, kind of uh, role models you know she's really noticing what the girls aren't and aren't doing in the media that she's engaging with in a way that she wasn't before and so for me it becomes 
more important to notice what kind of representation I'm, I'm having her see and what the female personalities that she's noticing and engaging with are. And I'm, I'm more conscious of that in everything from sort of books and the kind of movies that we're watching and, and the way that we talk about, you know, who's a role model and who's really interesting. And, um, you know, sometimes the kids have your number. My eldest asked me, she really wants to be an inventor. She loves STEM. And uh, I mean, a lot of these comments are about my eldest because my youngest is still four and she's she hasn't even started school yet. So she's really just not not quite where her sister is in terms of these things. Um, but my oldest daughter asked me about women inventors because that's her dream. And it occurred to me that off the top of my head, I could name very few. And I know that they exist. And I know that there's brilliant women out there who like Marie Curie and, and Haiti Lamar and all of these, but I couldn't give her this quick list the way that I could of male inventors. And so her question was, well, why can't you? And, you know, I can't give her this whole like social history of, how, of what opportunities women have and haven't had and um, why they're less represented in a number of ways. But what I could do was, you know, take her to go get a book on you know, women, female representation in STEM. And I could take her to participate in these activities. And I could take her to meet a, a friend and, and colleague who's a woman in the sciences. And I could do these things for her so that she could have this visibility and see that what she is interested in and what she wants to be is possible for a girl going forward. And so you really begin to see um, the ways in which representation and media is important. And so you try to give your children the best tools that you can so that when it's time for them to kind of try to build the contours of what they think they will be and how they imagine themselves, that, that they ha they're best equipped to do that in a way that's positive for them. Our guest is Laura Dotson-Renta. She is talking to us from Connecticut, where she makes her home with her husband and her two young daughters. She's a writer and scholar affiliated with Brown University. I'm enjoying our conversation so much. Uh, and let me ask you a little bit about, because we've done a program on siblings <laughs> and the issues that come up. And uh, we talked with one couple who uh, said that as soon as the younger sibling uh, started to master language, then the relationship with the older sibling really gets challenged. And I'm just curious what you're finding, at the, because it strikes me that uh, your uh, youngsters are, are just passing through that age, and I'll bet there are some stories and observations about trying to develop their own relationship uh, as siblings. Well, seven and four is a pretty loud age in our house. <laughs> uh, the youngest is certainly able to communicate her wants and desires and complaints and needs. And her sister is very, very comfortable uh, expressing her want for her sister to give her space or, you know, to share or not take her things. And so it, it, it's true. By the time that they can both articulate pretty well, but they're both young kids. There's a lot of conflict to be had. Uh, but by the same token, 
and I'm an only child, so I'm, I'm learning as I go. <laughs> but by the same token, um, they, they can't live with and they can't live without. So there's a lot of disagreement and a lot of mediation taking place, but there's also a lot of constant desire to be with each other and to kind of follow each other around the house and see what the other is doing. And uh, it's, it's kind of an experiment every day. You know, it can be a day where they get along great and everything is working, and then there can be another day when nobody's in a particularly great mood and nothing is being negotiated. And as parents, you try to sometimes intervene when something seems to be getting out of hand. But the older they are, the more that I feel it's necessary to sometimes let them work it out on their own, which can be as much of a challenge for them as for us because, you know, you're hearing it. And, and you want to intervene and, and to mediate, but you know that they have to be able to sometimes do this for themselves. We won't always be there to teach them how to relate to each other and what is right and what is fair. And sometimes they can really surprise you and come to a conclusion on their own. Or sometimes our oldest is coming to an age where she realizes that her sister's four and she's not going to be rational and she's not going to necessarily come to the best compromise on her own. And she is sometimes now able to say, well, you know, I'll let her have it because she's four and she doesn't understand. And that's great. Those are fantastic moments because then we can say, you know, that's a really great job. You know, you were really great at being the big kid and recognizing what she needed and what she's not capable of giving. And then, of course, there's other times when, you know, she's still seven, and it's like, no, I, I don't want her to have my book or my game or whatever. And then you have to say, well, all right, you know, we're going to have a timeout and talk to each of you about um, how you need to manage the situation. But sometimes kids need a little intervention, and sometimes they need the chance to surprise you and uh, to show you what solution they come up with. Well, I'm thinking as a researcher, and you've read studies after studies uh, about uh, psychology with, uh, uh, I mean, in all kinds of fields. But uh, if there's a psychological study, then, you know, they put kids in a room and they watch them. And they, as you say, watch them work it out and try to learn things about them. And then, you know, craft the uh, approach after having patiently watched them. But so there's a part of you, I'll bet, as a researcher that says, oh, let me watch what happens here. And then there's a part of you as a parent that says, I want it quiet sooner. <laughs> yes. I'll bet that's a, I'll bet that's a, a relevant struggle for you. Indeed. You do have these conflicting voices, and that's, that's perfectly true. You know, as somebody who, uh, my husband calls me a consumer of information, and this is, this is true. Anybody who considers themselves a researcher and a scholar is constantly looking up uh, something from all different angles. And what literature exists on this? You know, what ideas are out there on this? And so from that end, you want to sort of look at your children relating to each other and think, well, I wonder what kind of, you know, problem-solving capabilities they can bring to this. And then on the other hand, especially with uh, living where we do in the spate of cold days and snow days, if you've been at home for three days straight where no one has left the house and your children are bickering, you really want them to come to a solution fairly quickly. <laughs> so you, you navigate those different instincts. And, you know, the, the thing about it is that it's very easy 
to look at something abstractedly and, and intellectualize it. And it might even be your instinct as a researcher, but when it's your children, a lot of that goes out the window fairly quickly. And, and suddenly, you know, a theory or an idea makes much less sense when it's not panning out in your own home or when you have to go through the process to get you to that conclusion, right? So it's, it's very different to look at something from a, more of a research perspective than to live it in your own home. And it's both interesting and illuminating and quite humbling to say, yeah, that looks great on paper, but when it comes to your own kids. More bonus material from Lara Dotson-Renta on our website, peacetalksradio.com. In our entire interview with her, which includes conversation on traveling with youngsters in a time of fear, how to talk with young girls or boys about death and dying, and how to talk to a seven-year-old about politics. That's right. I had not planned on having any kind of a conversation in that arena at this age at all, but it was happening without me. (laughs) And so at some point we had to say, okay, you know, some things are happening. Things are being said that we find disturbing. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about why, um, because particularly with the rhetoric around Latinos, for example, um, my daughter was concerned that people who spoke Spanish were going to be sent away, and we are we are not Mexican immigrants. You know, we we don't have to worry about um, immigration status or having citizenship. Um, you know, Puerto Ricans automatically have that at birth, but to a child, this is all the same. And in fact, in a lot of political rhetoric, you know, it's kind of all the same. It's not like any distinctions are being made, really. So we had a talk about how there is no bad language. Um, there, there's no such thing as being a, a bad or an unwanted kind of person, depending on origin or what language you speak and why we believe that. And you keep it simple. You know, you have it adhere to the kinds of things that you teach a child, like the golden rule. You know, treat others the way you want to be treated and keep it at that and have that be the basis of their engagement and understanding going forward. But what I learned was that I also can't ignore it. More on that at peacetalksradio.com, where, as we've been saying, you can hear our entire interviews with all of our guests today. It's also where you can hear all of our shows in the series dating back to 2002, along with audio, pictures, and related resources. You can also learn how to support the work of our nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, which produces Peace Talks Radio separate and apart from your public media outlet. In addition to support from regular listeners just like you, we also get support from KUNM at the University of New Mexico, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, and businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center and Ruben Ramirez, located in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves-Moses is Executive Director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. Joshua Doffer-Johnson assisted on this show. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.